Wonderful. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. Well, it's lovely to, um, uh, to be here this evening and have an opportunity to, uh, to speak. I'm hoping that my voice lasts, because believe it or not, this is the first, um, first teaching I've given since Easter Day, because I'm sort of um, uh, having a sort of break from most things at the moment. Uh, I was on a, a leading a retreat in Finland last October, and twice during the retreat I was uh, given a verse from Psalm 23, verse 2, which is, uh, I will make you lie down in green pastures and lead you beside quiet waters. And uh, when the verse was given to me, I very clearly felt it was God speaking, and I kind of felt, oh, God's giving me permission to have a rest. Uh, but being me, I never find time to take a rest because I'm always finding things to do. Uh, so God's making me take a rest at the moment for various reasons. So, um, so my voice may not last out because I find if I don't teach for a while, I um, I lose my voice. So we'll see how far we get. But um, as I said, I've, I've, there are very few things that I'm doing at the moment. But this was one invitation that I didn't want to. Um, kind of, I saw I couldn't be with you on your day away at the beginning of the at the beginning of the month. Um, just the situation that we're in at the moment has settled a little. So I feel I can get my head around. Uh, one or two things. And this is a subject that is very close to my heart and uh, uh, what I'm very passionate about. So I didn't want to lose this one. So the, what I'm basically going to do with two halves this evening, I want to the first um, half just try and explore a little bit about God's mission and the heart of God and look at uh, the way that Jesus goes about mission and how we can be encouraged in that. And then after the coffee break, think a little bit about how we can use our, our own stories and our own experience of the way that God has worked in our lives to share that good news uh, with other people. But an initial question, I just want you to turn to the person sitting next to you, if you have someone sitting next to you, and uh, literally in 30 seconds or a minute, answer this question, why do a mission? Why tell other people about Jesus? So turn to the person sitting next to you and answer that question. So literally, the first thing that comes off the top of your head, don't think too much about it. Uh, why do mission? Why tell other people about Jesus? Okay, time up. That was plenty of time. So just call, call one or two out, or a few out. What were your, what answers did you have to the question? Why do you mission? Anybody? Don't be shy. Because it's good news. It certainly is. Because people need to know. It certainly do. Excellent. Yeah. Anything else? To keep going. If we don't if we don't tell the story at the next little Yeah, church only ever one generation away from extinction. 
Excellent. Anything else? That's a fair range. To tell people that God loves everybody. Excellent. Okay, lots of, um, lots of answers to that uh, question, but I want to focus in on uh, the doctrine of the Trinity as an answer to, uh, to that question. Uh, because uh, the, the Trinity uh, tells us something about the heart of God and what God is all about. One of the problems for our uh, Muslim brothers and sisters who insist on uh, one God, one person, is that uh, Allah is incapable of, of loving until he's created something. Because if you're only one on your own, you can't love, because love has to have an object. So if you're only one, you know nothing about love, and it can't be uh, the essence of who you are. It can't be an essential part of your character if you're only one. You have to have more than one if you're going to love. So once you have created something, then of course, if you wish, you can choose to love what you have created. But by the same token, because love isn't the essence of your character, you can choose not to love. So uh, for our Muslim brothers and sisters, uh, Allah is capable of loving, but he doesn't have to. Uh, He can love, but equally he doesn't have to love. It's not an essential part of his character. Uh, But for us as Christians, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, means something very, very different because we believe in one God but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are co-eternal and who have always existed in a relationship of mutual love. The Father loves the Son, the the Father loves the Spirit, the Spirit loves the Son, the Spirit loves the Father, and so it goes on round and round. So before uh, our God creates anything, love is the essence of his character. It's an essential part of his nature. And it's not something that he can change or deny or choose uh, to do or not to do. Uh, the Trinitarian God is a God who, who loves because that is his character. And so when God creates, everything that he creates is an expression of his love. The world, the universe that God has created, it's an expression of his love. Why did God create? Well, he created because his, it was an expression of his love, is expressing something of himself in what he creates. And so his creation is an expression of his love, but by the same token, God loves what he has created. Everything that God has created, he loves. He can't not love what he has created. It's an essential part of his character. And no matter what that creation may do, and no matter how that creation may choose to respond, God will always love what he has created. It's interesting, just, uh, this is you were referencing back to the last, uh, the last session and uh, the story of Genesis where God uh, creates and God creates Adam and Eve. And to begin with, they're in this beautiful relationship, a mutual relationship of love that Adam and Eve choose to love God and to respond to that love. But when Adam and Eve decide that they can do life better without God and when they reject him and go off on their own and everything starts to fall apart, God doesn't stop loving them. 
and he doesn't stop loving what he has created. Yes, there are all sorts of consequences of their rejection and their rebellion of God, but God can't stop loving what he has created. And so when God's creation rejects him and walks away from him, God's nature just causes him to pursue his creation and to, uh, uh, as I put it in a, just a sentence, relentlessly seek to evoke a response. That's what God does because love is the essence of his character. He goes after his creation and he goes after his creation because he loves what he has created and he can't stop loving what he has created. And God's the, the mission of God is to reach everything that is lost. The mission of God is to restore the creation that has been ruined through sin and rebellion. That's the heart of God. And he comes after us because he loves us. That's what motivates God in all his interactions with us. That's what motivates him in all his approaches towards us. It's out of love. That's why he comes after us. And God's love is inexhaustible. I was... um, uh, at church a couple of weeks ago, and somebody just made reference to the fact that God's love is unbreakable. I thought it was a lovely phrase. God's love is unbreakable. That no matter what you do, no matter how much you reject God, no matter how much you turn your back on Him, no matter, no matter what you do, you cannot break the love of God. And God in His love will always be pursuing you and always becoming after you and that's what motivates him and that's what motivates the mission of God and it's a mission not simply to uh, sort of pluck individuals from the earth and plonk them in a place called heaven God's mission is to see the restoration and the recreation of the whole of creation you know God creates this beautiful world for Adam and Eve to live in and they have this wonderful relationship with him and when Adam and Eve reject God and turn their backs on him, uh, obviously their relationship with God is broken, and a consequence of that broken relationship is that the created order starts to fall into decay, and the created order starts to fall apart. And God's mission is not simply to restore relationship with, uh, with us, with Adam and Eve, but his mission is to restore everything that was lost. I didn't um, uh, quite have time to do a little book list, but if I could recommend, uh, if I could recommend one book to you, it would be a book by um, Tom Wright called "Surprised by Hope." Uh, I don't know if you've uh, come across it or if you've read it, but it is. Um, I have two um, two favourite books that I generally recommend. One by Tim Keller uh, called "The Reason for God," which is just a fantastic apologetic. Uh, um, uh, Tim Keller's Reason for God, but uh, Tom Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, uh, is just a wonderful book about how God's mission and God's intention is the restoration of the whole of creation. And in the second part of that book, he writes about how an understanding of God's heart to restore creation impacts the way we go about mission and should shape the way the church goes about mission. So if I could recommend one book, that would be it, Tom Wright's uh, surprised by hope and one of the one of his his central thesis is that uh, is that Jesus is coming back to restore uh, to restore the earth and to restore creation 
uh, as it was originally designed to be, that we're not just going to be floating around, sitting on clouds, playing the harp uh, in some super spiritual ethereal existence. But actually, uh, the new creation is going to be just as real as this world, only more so. And it's very interesting when you, there's so many things that we assume uh, about the New Testament and the teaching of the New Testament that actually when you look at it, uh, suddenly you realize we've assumed all sorts of wrong things. And uh, one of the things about uh, what the New Testament teaches is that the direction of travel is that heaven is coming to earth rather than us going to heaven. And we've kind of bought into a misconception that we're going to die and go to heaven. Actually, no, uh, heaven is coming to earth, which reshapes the way you think about mission and it reshapes the way you think about the world and it reshapes the way you think about all sorts of things to do with discipleship. But I'm um, jumping on a little hobby horse and riding off down the lane. So we'll come back and uh, get back to mission. But the heart of God is a heart of love. He loves what he has created. And it's not within his nature to abandon what he has created. And so when we're thinking about our own mission as a church, and when we're thinking about why do mission, and we're thinking about, well, why tell others about Jesus? It's fundamentally, it's because we love, we share the heart of God, and we love what God has created. We love what God has created. And so if we live in a world in which we are surrounded by people who don't know that God loves them, don't know that God cares about them, then our motivation, our motivation is to, in love, share with them the nature of this God that we have uh, discovered. One of the things that I'm just uh, particularly learning again at the moment or learning in a deeper way just through this season of life that I'm walking through at the moment is just the the incredible pain of loving and yet that love not being responded to and if you've it's it's an in, just an incredible there's just an intensity of pain when you love you love someone so much and for for whatever reason they're unable to respond to that love it's it's an there's just an agony in it and that's the heart of god that he looks on what he has created and there's an agony in the heart of god that people are happy to live with their backs turned um turned towards him so that's the why i think of the heart of god and why god does mission it's because he loves. And whatever else we may think about mission, whatever strategies we may come up with and whatever theories we may come up with, I think it's essential that we remember that everything that we do is motivated by love. The, you know, the whole of the Bible is a story of God relentlessly pursuing his creation. You know, I love the, you know, the, just the story of the Old Testament is this roller coaster ride of, you know, the people of God. Uh, riding with God for a while and then thinking they do things better without him and rejecting him and turning their backs on him. And God comes after them. God pursues them. And there's, you know, the, the prophets, when they write about the, you know, the judgment of God and the consequences of rejecting of God, there's never a passage that doesn't have hope. No matter how severe the consequences, no matter how severe the punishment for the people of God rejecting him, every time there's a message of hope. And every time there's a message of God saying, I will come after you because he loves us and because he loves his creation. So I want to look at this, um, focusing on just this story of 
Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, because I think this is one of those uh, wonderful passages that tells us a great deal about how, how Jesus, and therefore how God, goes about, goes about mission. And uh, one of the things that I love, uh, one of the questions I always ask about gospel passages is, uh, the gospel writer was always very intentional about the way they construct their gospels. The passages, they're not just, they don't just sort of fall into place by, uh, by random. And so one of the questions I always ask uh, about any particular Bible passage is, why has the writer, why has the writer put it here? Uh, what's it doing in this place? So you always kind of look at what's going on before and what's going on after and this passage it sort of fits in a it sort of fits in a section where there are various people who are who are lost and who are trying to find sight so chapter 18 uh, verses 18 to uh, 30 there's a story of a rich person who is blind and stays blind the rich young ruler he can't He's very rich. He's got a lot of stuff. And he, it's a sad ending to that episode because he remains blind. He can't see what Jesus is trying to tell him. And in verse uh, uh, 35 of chapter 18, Jesus is approaching Jericho and there's a blind beggar who receives his sight. And then we get to chapter 19. And what do we discover in Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus is a blind beggar. He's a blind beggar who receives his sight as the blind beggar on the way to Jericho has received his sight. And I think Luke puts these passages together because there's the, there's the rich young ruler. He's very rich. He's got a lot of stuff, but he can't see what Jesus is trying to tell him. And then Jesus has this encounter with the blind man on the road to Jericho who, who gets his sight back. And then Jesus meets this other very rich man, Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus is able to receive his sight. His blindness is lifted. And this is how it happens. What do we know about Zacchaeus? We don't know a lot about him, but we know that he's wealthy. He's the only person in the Bible described as a chief tax collector. We know that tax collectors were very wealthy because they lined their own pockets by collecting too much money, than uh, more money than the Romans required, and uh, paying the Romans what they wanted and pocketing the difference. So uh, he's a rich, he's a rich man. And uh, we know too from verse 7 that he's regarded as a sinner because he betrays his own people. He's not keeping the religious rules. He's someone that other people look down on. Uh, he's someone who's as far away from God as it's possible to get because he lives a sinful life. And uh, so because of his wealth, he probably has uh, a, a particular circle of friends, but he's also aware that he's despised by most of his own People, in many ways, his life is one of uh, lostness and a life of blindness. And uh, Zacchaeus, despite this, is wants to see Jesus. There's something that fascinates him about Jesus, and there's something that draws him to Jesus. And one of the questions that, when we're thinking about mission, we need to be thinking about is, well, we live in a community of uh, people where as Christians we are a minority, we're surrounded by a majority of people who, who are not, who are not Christians and generally are not interested and by and large are not looking. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, well, what might cause 
one of these people who we live amongst who's not walking with Jesus at the moment, what might cause them to be interested in finding out more about Jesus? What would provoke our family members who are not Christians? What would provoke our neighbours and our friends? What would provoke them to be interested enough in Jesus to want to look a bit further? Well, what is it that uh, gets uh, Zacchaeus uh, climbing up a tree. He's so interested in seeing Jesus, he can't get close because of the um, because uh, of the crowd. So he climbs up a tree. Well, Jesus has a reputation, and the reputation of Jesus is one of good news. That's the reputation that goes with Jesus. He's a he's a controversial figure. He causes uh, a lot of division. But he has a crowd of people around him and the crowd are there because they, they know good news when they hear it and when they see it. And that's why there is a crowd there. Because Jesus' reputation is one of good news. And the, the reputation is that when people encounter Jesus, things change for the better. When people encounter Jesus, things change for the better. Generally, the people, the only people that Jesus are critical of are the religious do-gooders. The ones who look down their noses at other people because they think they're better than they are. They're the ones that Jesus is critical of. But by and large, Jesus welcomes anyone who will draw near. And by and large, almost inevitably, when people spend time with Jesus, they come away with their lives having changed for the better. And so Jesus has this reputation as being that of good news, which again challenges us when we, to ask that question about our own reputation as individual Christians and our corporate reputation as church. What is our reputation? Do people think about us and do they think about church? And do they, do they, is their encounter with us one that makes them think, well, that looks like good news. My encounter with that person was, was good news. My encounter with that church community was good news. It is a, it is a tragedy that very many people, uh, when they think about church, don't think that. Very many people, when they think generally about church, because of uh, so much that is um, in the news, and it's often the bad, you know, it's the bad stories that make the press. Often, our reputation is not that of being good news. People often don't think of the, think of Christians and think of the church, and immediately think these are good news people. Uh, often, on an individual basis, it's very different. But that's the the question to ask: is when people encounter me, and when they know that I am a Christian. Do they go away thinking that I was good news to them? Or do they go away thinking that I've judged them or condemned them or that I think I'm better than they are? Zacchaeus climbs the tree because he knows, he's heard that Jesus is good news. He's heard the stories of people whose lives have been changed. The blind man walking into Jericho suddenly got his his sight back. The people who've discovered the forgiveness that God has for them. These are the stories that are going around, and that's what provokes Zacchaeus and others like him to climb the tree. He wants to see more of who Jesus is. I don't think Zacchaeus particularly expected to have a personal encounter with Jesus. Uh, I think perhaps he was hoping just to sit up the tree and sort of view things from a 
He viewed things from a distance. Uh, perhaps he didn't want to be stoned as he was recognized as the kind of tax collector. He was not the most popular man in, um, in town that day. Uh, and yet Jesus spots him up in the tree. And I think there's something very significant about what it is that Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus says to Zacchaeus, and it's simply this, that Jesus says to Zacchaeus, he says, I want to come to your house. I want to come to your house today. One of the things that um, uh, often challenges me about the way that we, uh, the way that we go about being church is that often our invitation is for people to come and be with us and to come to our house. And that's often our invitation is, well, you know, if you want to find out more, then come and be, come to my house, come to my church, come into my community. Uh, well, Jesus, on this occasion, he does it the other way around. He doesn't say to Zacchaeus, well, you know, come and, come and be, he says, I want to, I want to come and be where you are. I want to come to your house. And I think that must have just done scrambled to Zacchaeus' brain, because I think he wasn't expecting to have any kind of encounter with Jesus whatsoever. And, and Zacchaeus knows the kind of person that he is in religious terms. He knows that he's beyond the pale. He knows that he's the kind of person that God isn't going to be interested in. And he knows that this Jesus is, you know, people are flocking around him. He's the, you know, the, the new rabbi that everyone wants to, to hear. And suddenly, Jesus is saying to him, I want to come and be where you are. And it completely changes the, the dynamic. And uh, so often when we invite people to come and, be where, come and be where we are, well, immediately that takes them out of, of their comfort zone. And it's inviting them into a place where we're comfortable and where we know what we're doing. And I think it's very significant that Jesus says, no, I want to come to your house. I want to experience your life. I want to come into a place where you are at home. And in that place, I want to share myself with you. And I think when we think about mission, uh, there's something very uh, significant about that, that are we, what's the, what's our focus? And yes, there has to be, a, there's a place always for inviting people to come and share in our community and share in the relationships that we have together as a Christian family. But actually there's something very significant about thinking, well, where do you, you know, where do people live their lives? Where are people, where are the places where people feel comfortable out in the community? Where are the, uh, the, where are the places that we should be going to and immersing ourselves in as, as Christians? so that we take ourselves out of our comfort zone and deliberately put ourselves in a place where we may not be comfortable, but in a place where we may have opportunity to have conversations with people and share our stories with people in a way that uh, uh, allows them to ask questions, allows them to be in a place where they're, they feel more secure. Jesus says, I want to come to your house, Zacchaeus. And everyone's, of course, horrified because he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Uh, but Zacchaeus uh, welcomes him, and we don't know the quite the the. Um, it's one of those places where scripture is silent. We don't quite we don't know their conversation. We don't know what they talked about, but we do know the result, and the result is a completely transformed life. That Zacchaeus at the beginning of this passage is his life is one characterised by selfishness. That's the life of a tax collector. Uh, you're a tax collector because you know it's going to make you rich, and it's going to make you rich because you can take. 
Uh, you can steal from your, your fellow, fellow men. Uh, so his life is transformed from one of selfishness to one of, uh, of selflessness, and it's transformed because of this encounter with Jesus. And uh, there's something very significant in this encounter, uh, because somehow Zacchaeus is not put off by the fact that Jesus is the holiest man who's ever lived. Jesus is the holiest man who's ever lived, and Zacchaeus is someone whose life is far from God, and yet Zacchaeus, as usually happens, it's always the sinners who feel most at home with the holiest man who's ever lived. Which again, I think is very significant and very challenging. Jesus, the holiest man who's ever lived, and the people who feel most at home with him are the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people whose lives are supposedly as far from God as it's possible to get, yet they're the ones who love being with him. And it's not that Jesus hides his holiness, it's that he's so extravagantly loving in the way that he engages with people that they feel that they can go and spend time with him. And in his company they discover a new way of living. And one of the things that always challenges me in church is holding the tension between a life of, of holiness and a life of love. And sometimes in the church, the, we always have to re- walk this tightrope, and sometimes what the church does is we, are, we sort of wobble too far onto the side of, of holiness and we try to present a form of holiness that repels people because they think, well, I could never be, I could never be as good as you pretend to be or you're all hypocrites and, uh, and we present a form of holiness that people think is unattainable. Uh, or uh, we go too far off the other side and we become so loving that we say, well, it doesn't matter what kind of life you're living or what you're doing, God will accept you because he's so loving. And somehow I have to keep this tension between God's holiness and God's love. And Jesus does that with Zacchaeus. Jesus, the holiest man who's ever lived, and yet Zacchaeus enjoyed being in his company because Jesus loves him. And it's as he loves him that Zacchaeus sees the holiness of Jesus and his life completely changes. That's what transforms his life. And so, uh, again, one of the things I think we need to think about in mission and when we're seeking to uh, tell people about Jesus is that we uh, we mustn't uh, sort of soft pedal on the holiness of God because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is a holy God. God doesn't change. We do God no favours if we say to people, well, actually, actually, you don't really need to change. You, you don't really need to do anything different. God will accept you just the way we are. We don't do God any favors. The Bible doesn't tell us that God is like that. God, the Bible tells us that God is a holy God, a God who has exacting standards, but a God who loves what he has created. And so we need to somehow keep that tension between the two things of pursuing lives of holiness and yet loving those that we come across in such a way that they're able to experience 
something of the nature of God. And that's what changes Zacchaeus's life, is this encounter with the love of Jesus. And I think because Jesus loves him so much, he kind of thinks, well, it shines a light on the poverty of the life that he's living. It shines a light on the poverty of the life that he's living. Uh, one of the things that I reflect on on my own um, Christian journey and, and kind of the contrast between uh, the years that I spent living my life without Christ and the years that I spent living my life with Christ is just the poverty of the life that I was living without Christ. You know, I thought at the time I was, you know, I thought at the time I was having a ball and I thought I was having a great time and I thought I was doing all these wonderful things and getting into all these scrapes and taking all these risks and doing all these wonderful, they seemed so exciting. And then you have this encounter with Christ that shines a light on the poverty of the life that you thought you thought was so wonderful. And that's Zacchaeus's experience. So let me move on just to look at uh, just an encouragement and an exhortation from uh, from Peter. And uh, then there's, I've put some questions which I'm not really going to focus on particularly this evening. Those are questions for you to take off the back of what I'm about to say and use when you meet later in the month in your uh, in your small groups. But as an introduction to those questions, I want to just focus on Peter's One of the things I love about Peter is that he is, um, you know, he's not the polished article, is he? Uh, Peter's uh, is just, he's wonderful. He's always putting, opening his mouth, putting his foot in it, and then thinking afterwards. He's, he's, he's full of passion, and he's hot-headed, and he's, he's just, he just wants to get in there. Uh, but then he makes all sorts of mistakes, and he has to kind of backpedal and apologize. And, but he's, he's a wonderful encouragement to us because he's not the polished article. And uh, first of all, I just want to go to Acts chapter 3, this wonderful, uh, wonderful passage where Peter and John, they go up to the temple. They have this encounter with the crippled beggar. And it's the thing that Peter says to the crippled beggar that I think is so significant and so encouraging for us when we're thinking about, well, how do I, how do I share, how do I share my faith? How do I share what I know of God with, with those who don't know Him? And I think almost always, almost immediately when we think about doing that, we feel this sense of inadequacy and this sense of, I'm not sure what I would say. I don't know where I would start. And the wonderful encouragement is simply this, that Peter, this kind of rough and ready, uneducated fisherman, has this encounter with this crippled beggar who um, who is completely healed and off the back of uh, many people are led to faith. And it's the thing that Peter says to him in verse 6 of chapter 3. He simply says, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I have I give you. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. And a simple point I want to make is that, is that we already have everything that we need to do whatever it is that God asks of us. We already have whatever it is that we need to do whatever it is that God asks of us. Uh, so often I find, I, we're, and with my own experiences, I'm thinking, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared, I, I don't know enough, I couldn't possibly do that. And of course, 
you know, discipleship is a journey of constantly learning and constantly going deeper in our relationship with the Lord and learning what. But this is, you know, pretty much day one of the church. Uh, and Peter says, what I have, I give you. And what is it that Peter has? Well, I think the, the things that he has are he's had an encounter with Jesus that has changed his life. He has a story. He has a story of, well, this is how I used to live my life. And then I spent time with Jesus and I discovered this about Jesus. And now, now this is who I am and this is how Jesus has changed my life. So he has a story of the difference that Jesus has made to him. And he also knows that he has been filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to preempt uh, July's um, awakening meeting, but he's, he knows the power of God in his own life because he has experienced it. He's seen Jesus exercise power and he's exercised that delegated power that Jesus has given to him. And, that, and, and so he says, what I have, I give you. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we, we have the same. We have the same. And we, we give what we know. And so uh, if you would go back to uh, the session that you had many months ago on, on identity, it's so important that we know our identity in Christ, that we know what it is that we have so that we can give it away. So that's the encouragement that uh, everything that you need, you already have. But now here's the, uh, the exhortation. Peter, in his first letter, is um, uh, writing to, he's not writing to a church, he's writing to Christians who have been dispersed through persecution. This is a letter, doesn't just go to one church, it's passed around uh, groups of Christians who are spread out all through Turkey because of persecution, they're isolated, they're in little pockets here, little pockets there. And so it's a letter kind of encouraging them in their in their walk with Jesus. And in uh, 1 Peter 3:15, it's one of the first verses that I learned as a young Christian. And uh, until just a few years ago, a few years ago I missed uh, one of the most significant phrases in it. Uh, but he says um, uh, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. And when I learned the verse, the emphasis was always on, uh, we'll always be prepared to give an answer. And so the emphasis was always on, well, what will my, you know, what, what is my answer? How do I share my faith? How do I tell people about Jesus? But the significant phrase is, to everyone who asks you. To everyone who asks you. Now, Peter's not expecting them just to be sort of wandering around the streets telling you know, all comers willy-nilly about, he's saying, you know, have an answer ready for when people ask you for the hope that you have, which immediately kind of um, uh, provokes the question, well, he was expecting that they would be asked. In other words, he was expecting that there would be something about their lives that was so different and so distinctive that people would ask them what on earth they were doing. He would ask them, why, why are you living in that way? Uh, in the early church, one of the, one of the big things was, um, uh, why do you love your enemies? 
In the early church, people thought Christians were, were mad because they loved their enemies. And people just couldn't get their, their Christians were mocked and ridiculed because they loved their enemies. People didn't get their head around it, but people were, were fascinated. They said, why? Why do you love your enemies? That's, uh, you know, in a culture, it's just, it's a sign of, it's ridiculous, a sign of weakness. But Peter is expecting that their lives will be distinctive, that they will stand out from the crowd. And that will provoke people to ask them why their lives are different. And that's a huge challenge for, uh, for us. And the question for us to, re- to kind of reflect on is, uh, you know, does my life look so distinctive from the lives being lived around me that people are fascinated by what they see? Do people see in me something different that makes them want to ask me about the hope that I have? That makes them want to ask me why my life is different? And I just put in the notes three, three particular things that I, uh, uh, that I think are maybe particular kind of um, focuses that would provoke people to ask, to ask us or would fascinate people uh, about our lives. One is this thing that we see with uh, this encounter that Jesus has with Zacchaeus. It's just this extravagant love. Are we extravagantly, are we, re- are we reckless in the way that we love those around us? Is that our reputation? Do people think of us and think of our church community and, and think, and think, well, when I encounter them, I feel so loved and so welcome. And this is a community that is so ridiculously generous with their time and their talents and, and everything else. In the context of 1 Peter, one of the things that, that Peter writes about perhaps more than anything else is this uh, pursuit of a holy life. It's the pursuit of holiness, that we should never be satisfied with where we are in our relationship with God. We should be uh, ruthless in a personal pursuit of holiness. So say Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus felt at home with Jesus because Jesus was holy. That was his character and his nature. But in his actions, he was extravagantly loving. And as a Christian community, our actions need to speak of the love of God. We don't ram holiness down people's throats, but our pursuit of holiness should be evident in the way that we live our lives. That there are things that we don't tolerate because we know they're not in keeping with the character of God. Do people look on our lives and see something see something different, see a beauty in our lives, see a loveliness in our lives that's absent from the world. And in this uh, demonstration of power, Peter and John's encounter with the crippled beggar, uh, you know, on the, the way into the temple, what impacted the crippled beggar's life was this, the power of God changing his life. That was what provoked him and provoked those crowds around to ask, well, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? But as we think about uh, mission, and as we think about how we, uh, how we share the good news of God's love, one of the questions that we always need to be asking is, are we provoking people to ask us about the hope that we have? Or are we always trying to tell people who are not interested? It's far easier to tell, somebody, tell someone 
something that they're interested in finding out than it is in trying to tell someone something that they don't really want to know. And so our reputation as Christians and our reputation as a church should be such that, like Zacchaeus, people are interested. People are fascinated. They want to know. So that when then we have opportunity to tell them our story of what God has done in our lives, there's, they're willing to listen and they're willing to engage. 